Well, please have um, Luke chapter 3 open in front of you, page 1004, and we'll pray before we start. Father, we do thank you once again for your word. We are so privileged that we have your word in our language, that we can read it, that we can hear what you are saying to us. Help us this morning, Lord, to feel the challenges of the text in front of us. Speak to us, Lord, and, and change us and convict us. Work in us by the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, I would guess that few of us are lucky enough to be able to claim that we have a stress-free life. I mean, I meet quite a few of you throughout the week, and some of you are like the proverbial swan that's just, you know, just graceful. You're gracefully handling life, but... It, Perhaps underneath the water, the little legs are really paddling. There is a level of stress there. There are all kinds of pressures that life throws at us, aren't there? A study was conducted last year that revealed that teaching and nursing, for those of you interested, are amongst the most stressful jobs in the UK, teaching and nursing, or healthcare generally. Yes, yeah, so lots of cheers for that. A recognition that you're going through something hard. The report says that amongst... Uh, that almost half of sick days that are taken across Britain, half, are a result of work-related stress. And those working in public service industries, including welfare, welfare, healthcare, and education, are worst affected. And the shocking figures show this. According to figures, 12.5 million working days were lost last year in 2016 to 17 due to the condition amounting to actually 49% of sick, day, sick days taken. 49% of them are, are just from stress, not even because you've got a cold or man flu or whatever else it is. According to that survey, the main cause of stress at work related to workload pressures or being landed with too much responsibility with a lack of uh, support. Other factors included organisational changes at work, violence and uncertainty over the future. I mean, that would make a pretty stressful life, wouldn't it? I, when I was starting out in teaching, I had a week off sick from stress. Uh, I literally could not, could not do anything. I was completely incapacitated by it. I had to learn some very valuable lessons as a young man about handling stress. But stress affects us all, doesn't it? Um, let's not forget the plight of the SAHM, the stay-at-home mum or dad, to those who are uninitiated. Back before we had kids, I used to think, wow, that's going to be a fantastic gig, you know. Uh, let Sarah go out full-time to work as a doctor, brilliant, and I'll stay at home, I'll handle the childcare. But having lived through raising three-and-a-half toddlers, I don't think that anymore, you'll be pleased to know. As one mum put it, I love this, it's like... The weirdest, most demanding, unpaid internship ever. With either the best boss or the worst boss, depending on how many naps have occurred that day. That stay-at-home mum. And then at the other end of the age spectrum, even the elderly struggle with high stress levels. According to the Holmes and Rahi stress scale, retirement itself is ranked... Just the, the event of retirement is ranked as the 10th most stressful event in life. Can you believe that? 
So sorry if you were looking forward to you know, finishing up work and having the, the easy life after all those years of employment and drudgery. No, 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 no. Stress is on the plate. And added to that, it's at the end of life we become much more susceptible to a whole load of other things on that list. Major stress, stress contributors, such as the death of loved ones, the loss of close friends, sickness, financial worries. All of these things suddenly pile up on your plate. Isn't that depressing? <laughs> so life's a grind, and then it's just stress to the end. Now, of course, the Christian, as part of this fallen world, is not immune to these stresses. We go through it along with the rest of the world. We have, we, we have the pressure on us. Paul reminded the church in Rome, though, that we live in a groaning creation and that we groan along with it as we wait for everything to be renewed. But it's not renewed yet. And so there's a lot of groaning. There's a lot of groaning in this world. Now, we've come to an interesting little section of Mark's gospel here in chapter 3 where Mark is kind of segueing between the rejection of Jesus, and you've seen it building up, haven't you? Those five incidents, clashes with the religious leaders, rejection by the authorities, and his final pronouncement of judgment on them that we get at the end of chapter 3. And it raises a very practical subject, this little, little, little transfer bit in the middle, that perhaps we don't give enough attention to, or often enough anyway, the subject of pressure and stress. And what do we do with pressure and stress? Verses 7 to 12 may be a very brief kind of snapshot kind of paragraph, but it gives a fascinating insight in the kind of pressure and stress that Jesus met with on a daily basis. We're going to take a look at that. See, the author of the letter to the Hebrews assures us of this, speaking about Jesus. You know these words? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. It's a reminder that though Jesus was fully God, yes, he was also fully man. He struggled just like we do. He got tired. We know that. He, he managed to, to fall asleep during a raging storm that had seasoned fishermen fearing for their lives. He was tired, wasn't he? He had to do, deal with tremendous pressure, day in and day out, meeting demands of people. He felt the sting of rejection, constantly rejected, rejected, let down, disappointed by people. He knew what it was like to be misunderstood. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 3, even by his own family misunderstood. That's quite a pressure, isn't it? He knew what it was like to be used by crowds that were just coming to get something for themselves and nothing more. And if you want to see a snapshot of Jesus' ministry close up in Galilee, here it is. Have a look with me from verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard, when they heard all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. And because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. 
but he gave him strict orders not to tell who he was. Now, we can let a little sort of paragraph like that wash over us as we move on to the next bit of the gospel, but I want us to just focus a little bit on this this morning. It's the last little piece of Mark we get to do this year, because it will be the new year by the time we're back into Mark now with all the Christmas stuff going on. But here's a picture of Jesus. And as we start this little section, Jesus heads down to the lake again. He's away from the busy town. He's been in Capernaum at the synagogue. He's fresh, remember, from a confrontation with the Pharisees again. It's really upset Jesus, the way that they're behaving. Uh, And then he knows they've gone out to plot his death. That's hanging over him as he moves on. The death The death plot has started, and he heads down to perhaps get some space between himself and the situation, the busy town, and what's the first thing we read? But the crowds follow. The crowds follow him down there, and not just a crowd, but look at verse 7, a large crowd. Mark's making a point here, okay? It's a large crowd that follow him. See, it seems that word has spread further than just the towns around the lake now, Mark actually names the origins of some of the crowds that are coming to Jesus in this large crowd. We've got Jerusalem and Judea there, look. The more cosmopolitan area around the capital. About 100 miles south from Galilee, they've travelled up. Then you've got Idumea and the regions across the Jordan. That's still further south. And then over to the east across the river, starting to come from further bits of country from Jordan, that sort of area. And then there's Tyre and Sidon, basically Lebanon, up in the north. This is an international crowd, an enormous crowd, a mixture of Jews and Gentiles from a large geographic area, and they've all come down to see Jesus. And they would all have travelled by foot or by cart, slow journeys. They're on a mission. They want to see Jesus. After long, tedious journeys, they're getting there, and they're going to get to Jesus, right? determined to see him, determined to get close to him. And don't miss the little detail as well that Mark gives us. Why have they come? Why have they come? Was it because they'd heard of Jesus' teaching about the arrival of God's kingdom, the expectations of God's people? Was it that they wanted to find out about salvation, to learn at Jesus' feet? Were they all seeking eternal life? They wanted to hang on his every word. Well, not according to verse 8. They came because they heard all he was doing. They heard about what he was doing. Miracles, wonders, healings. They came to have physical needs and wants met. Spectacles that they wanted to see. That's why they came. And they came in their droves. So much so that verse 9, look, Jesus actually has to have his disciples get a boat ready just offshore so that there's some sort of exit point for him to get away. You can picture it, can't you? There's Peter with the keys. He says, Peter, keep the engine running. I might need to make a quick, hasty getaway from the crowds. And there's Jesus carving out. Can you picture it all? Carving out just about enough room to minister to the needs of the crowds as they jostle forwards, trying to get closer to him all the time. Mark says in verse 10, look, those with diseases were pushing forwards to touch him. (laughs) You picture yourself in that situation. The Bible dictionary colourfully defines the word push for pushing forwards as more literally that mobs of diseased people were falling onto him. 
That's the, that's the word used. The diseased were falling on him. I could put a zombie film reference in there, but I won't. But can you picture it? And all the while, building up this picture, all the while, echoing around him. Do you hear him? The shouts of the demonized. They're not falling on him, says Mark. They're falling before him. And they're shouting, you are the son of God, before he silences them. It's quite a, quite a situation, isn't it? Could you, how would you cope with all of that going on at the same time? The mobs, the crowds, the shouting, the demands on you. Well, clearly we see again here, don't we, that popularity is not a safe guide to whether God is at work. We shouldn't ever get excited simply because of large crowds. A large crowd does not necessarily, and it seems often to me doesn't at all, mean that God is at work in the hearts of those who are present. I don't know about you, but I would rather see small numbers where God is obviously at work in the power of his spirit, growing, convicting, changing, maturing people. I'd rather see that than large crowds that are essentially just coming to get something for themselves. We need to look at our own hearts there, don't we? I hope you feel the same. Even so, though, with that kind of a crowd, that kind of pressure, Jesus still tirelessly ministers on, on and on. When the helpless and the hopeless come before him, just as you saw in the synagogue uh, that we were looking at last week, he cannot help but be moved to tend to them, to care for them. Jesus under pressure. The little cherry on the top, have a look at verse 20, chapter 3. It's very telling. The very next thing, they enter a house, and again a, a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. He forsakes his own physical needs to deal with the needs of others, to care for them. So how does Jesus do it? How does he, how does he cope with that? I mean, he's human. We believe he's fully man as well as fully God. It's not like suddenly the fully man bit just kicks out and, okay, we're going to have to be fully God only now to deal with this pressure. How does the fully human Jesus handle such a demanding life? Well, Mark hints at a few things that are essential, and they're very helpful to us as his disciples. How do Jesus' disciples cope with this kind of pressure? First thing is this. You see it in verse 7. Number one. He withdraws. Verse 7 says, He withdrew with his disciples to the lake. One commentary points out that this is the only use of that word to withdraw that you get in Mark, but that the same word is used repeatedly in Matthew for finding a retreat, trying to go and find somewhere safe. For example, somewhat seasonally, it's used to describe Mary and Joseph making their exit down to Egypt to get away from Herod, trying to butcher the children. It's, it's a retreat, a, a pursuit of a safe place, a getting away from it. Jesus knew the need that we have as frail human beings to get away from the hustle and bustle of life, of, our, of busyness, to, to lift our minds for a while, from the, mon- the mundane, the things we've become absolutely focused on, and just to, just to lift them up, elevate our eyes every now and then, and, and fix them on something higher. Just to be quiet. Just to be alone for a little while. It's a basic human need, isn't it? 
space. I know for myself, if I don't do this, I start to feel overwhelmed. And then I start to be ratty with, with my family. <laughs> Kent Hughes, the author of the book Disciplines of a Godly Man, writes this. We need silence. To use the language of the mystics, we need a sanctuary, a hermitage. It's not that hard. A parked car in the park, a church sanctuary, a, a walk on a hiking path, a few minutes downstairs before the family wakes up. The pressures of life and the example of Christ demand that we do this every day for at least a few minutes, as well as during regular extended times. It's true, isn't it? As an old preacher once said, if we do not follow Christ's example to come apart, we may indeed just come apart. We need space. It's good to carve out space in a stressful world. The second thing is this. Number two, he prays. Now, Mark doesn't record this here, but in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 6, exactly the same things being spoken about. The doctor there writes about the choosing of the 12 apostles, which we've just read. And as Jesus goes to the mountain to do that in Luke 6, he goes up to spend a night in prayer before doing so. Another retreat, you see. A withdrawal from the madding crowd, and this time to pray to spend time with his father. Prayer is completely indispensable to the Christian. Completely indispensable, and yet often neglected. It's a strange dilemma within us, isn't it? Not because God needs us to tell him what we need so that he'll know, but because we need to tell him the things that we need. You see the difference? Jesus himself said that our Father in heaven knows what we need before we even ask him. And yet, after having said that, Jesus carries on straight away with the next sentence, this then is how you should pray. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He knows what you need, and this is how you should pray then. The Scottish minister George MacDonald was once asked, if God knows what we need, why do we need to pray, George? And he replied, what if he knows prayer to be the thing we need first and most? What if the main object in God's idea of prayer be the supplying of our great, our endless need, the need of himself? That's what prayer is about, isn't it? We've got to banish any concept that... that that, that's, that we treat God like a kind of celestial vending machine, you know, where we put in the right formula, say the right words, and out pop the goods. Unfortunately, that is how many of us treat God. We only come to him with brief requests when we're in a pinch, right? But prayer is so much more. Prayer is about having a living, active, intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father where we're telling him our woes, where we're bearing our hearts, bringing our petitions, waiting on him for a response in quiet. Surely that's what sustained Jesus. By coming away and getting on our knees, we remember that we are not alone in the struggles of life, the struggles that we face. It is our privilege to bring every concern to the one who understands what we're going through. It's interesting, that passage from Hebrews 4 that we read earlier, 
it, it assures us not only that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been through it all, but it goes on to draw a conclusion from that truth. Do you remember what it is? The writer says this, we, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see how it, the one leads to the other? The very one who intercedes for us in our struggles is the same one who ministered to these crowds and walked the road to Calvary. And that gives us confidence, doesn't it? To come to him, asking for grace, asking for help. Jesus came away, Jesus prayed. Thirdly, number three, he shared the load. He shared the load. Verse 13, Mark tells us, Jesus went up on a mountainside where he prayed and he called to him those he wanted and they came to him. And he appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So Jesus calls these 12 men, and he calls them, says Mark, Mark wants to draw our attention at least, to, for two reasons he calls them, two purposes. First, he calls them that they might be with him, simply that they might be with him. I take it that means that they might be his close companions, to be with him day in, day out. We know, we know that even within the three as well, there were, within the twelve, there were three, weren't there, who were especially close to Jesus. Peter, James and John, who, who went into situations with Jesus that the others didn't. These were the men who were with Jesus almost 24-7 for about three years. Think of the time, the relationships built over that time. They would have eaten together, walked long journeys together, discussed all manner of things and teachings, witnessed all sorts of events and happenings, shared all kinds of experience. They became a tight band of brothers, you can be sure, can't you? And Jesus needed their friendship. He needed their friendship, just as they needed him. Right back in the second chapter of the Bible, God states, it is not good for the man to be alone. We were made for, first of all, for communion with God, and second of all, for a relationship with each other. We're relational people. We don't do well on our own. We're not islands. They are basic human needs, and without them, without them, the burdens of life will crush us, will crush us. Church ministry can be a really lonely job, <laughs> Many ministers are on their own for much of the time, sat in sort of lonely, cold offices. <laughs> I've been blessed with the privilege of working for a number of churches where I've been able to be part of a team, and that's been a wonderful thing. I can't tell you how helpful it is to be able to have someone that you can confide in, someone you can laugh with occasionally, and not, not, not go down the road of taking yourself so seriously, someone to keep you grounded it's so important we have those kinds of people around us. It's one of the reasons I like it that people pop into this church throughout the week. Okay? It's really great, and it's a mix of different kinds of people. You know, Of course, there'll be times when I'm in my groove, 
and I want to finish reading something, I want to finish writing something. But I'd have gone even more mad than I am now if I didn't stop and just stand in the kitchen with someone or, you know, Rudy pops into my room and we just shoot the breeze together and we pray together because we need each other. It's a tremendous blessing. So please pop in if you've got the opportunity. That's really lovely to do that. While we're on this, can I highlight a comment, actually, that was something that was raised at the prayer meeting this week. There are those amongst us who are sick, who are housebound for a time, or maybe even looking like they're going to be housebound for the rest of their lives. They, they still need people, and they'll be lonely. They need company. Can I urge you, if you have the opportunity, pop round to people. Find out who it is that's on their own. We weren't made to be alone. Go and meet them. Go and meet the lonely and strengthen what remains. You'll be a tremendous blessing if you do that. Well, Jesus appointed them first that they might be with him. And secondly, if you look, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. That is, the second reason Jesus appoints these people, is the, the, these brothers of his, is to join him in shouldering the burden of the ministry that he was doing. Delegation. Delegation doesn't always come naturally to those, especially to those who are busy. Uh, a lot of busy people just too busy to delegate, I guess. But it's an important skill to learn, isn't it, when we're leading something. It releases the pressure on yourself, and it has the bonus of actually often being a tremendous encouragement to the person that you delegate to. When I started as an apprentice at our church in Liverpool, uh, a few weeks in, that my, uh, my mentor actually handed over to me a large ministry for the, the 14 to 18-year-olds at the church. He just handed it over to me. Now, of course, he wasn't going to let me just go, go off and make all you know, terrible mistakes and stuff. He, he oversaw what was going on. But by delegating that to me, he blessed me tremendously and encouraged me in my ministry. It meant he could focus his attention elsewhere, and it meant that I had a real chance to grow. Big part of delegation, of delegation is, of course, having that eye for potential seeing something that other people don't see in someone, and then enabling them to be able to use those gifts. When you look at this list of names in this chapter, they are a motley crew, aren't they? You do wonder to yourself, what did Jesus see in them? How did Jesus look at them? Did he see a little spark in there? Have a look at them, verse 16. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to whom he gave the name Boanerges which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So first of all in that list, you've got the four fishermen. Four fishermen. Simon, a.k.a. Peter, or Petros, the leader of the band. He was the big, loud, outspoken one in the group. That's the picture you get, isn't it? Uh, as also clearly were James and John, the sons of thunder. <laughs> you can always tell when close re relationships are forming, can't you, within a, within a group, because the nicknames come out. You've got Petros, the rock, and the thunder boys, the thunder brothers. You know that those guys are going to be, they're going to be heading up the open air preaching team, don't you? Thundering and shouting the rock there in the marketplace. And then you've got Andrew, who seems to have been the quiet one. He's quiet. 
Uh, all he seems to get known for in the Gospels is being a bringer. He brings people to Jesus. He's the one, actually, who brought, Je- who brought Peter to Jesus in the first place. And ask any minister. We love bringers. Bringers are fantastic. People that just want to bring people along and get, get them to hear the word of God. Now, we don't know much from the Gospels, certainly. There's a lot of traditions about the others except to say that amongst them, amongst of them, if you look at them, we've got Matthew, who we've met, who was a former tax collector. So he was a, a reformed criminal, basically. And then you've got Thomas. Thomas, the one who just questions everything. He's so intellectually honest. He never pretends to know anything. He just blurts out the questions all the time. Then you've got Simon, who was a zealot, like a political activist, you know, he'd probably be, I don't know, probably not Greenpeace. That's probably a bad par- parallel. But he's more of a terrorist, probably. And then there's Judas Iscariot, the traitor. What a crew. And most of them have no formal education. You can be sure of that. It might be one or two of them that learned a few things at school. But most of them, they were down to the earth, down to earth. They were salt of the earth. And on the whole, they were working class boys, weren't they? Just a band of working class men. But, as was observed later on when Jesus went to heaven, they were noted for having been with Jesus. And that made all the difference. These were the men who would accompany Jesus and support him. They'd be with him on the good days and on the bad days, through thick and thin. Can I just comment? I know some of us prefer our own company. That is a particular personality type. We might call ourselves introverts. And we're very, very happy to just have every evening in, as many evenings in as possible, and just be with ourselves. And there are some of us that are so involved, actually, on the other end of the spectrum, so involved in social groups outside of church that we've got very little time for building friendships with Christian brothers or sisters. But we need each other. Not just friendship, but Christian friendship. So important, isn't it? And we will do so more and more as the world we, slip, we live in slips further into moral and spiritual madness. We will need each other. Following the example of Jesus in doing this, in doing these three things, is going to take discipline. It will. It takes effort. Carving out time. Some of you will be sitting there probably thinking, you do not know what my life is like. There is no time to carve out, Andy. Wrestling in prayer, I find it so hard to do that. Investing in friendships can be, can be quite demanding, can't it? Putting that time aside. But they are the God-given means of grace that help us survive as Christians in a crazy and a hectic world. We mustn't neglect them. In the stormy times of life, it is a great comfort to know, isn't it, that Jesus understands the pressures that you and I find ourselves in. And that's what Mark is showing us here. And supported by prayer and by friendship, even though that friendship could have been a little bit shaky at times, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. He was able to endure national rejection, mocking, mistreatment, betrayal, even crucifixion. And he did this for you and me. He did this to bring us into that wonderful relationship with the God who made us so that we might know him. 
And if you put your trust in him, you will be safe, both in this life and in eternity. You will be able to find rest and peace. No anxiety about unforgiven sin. Imagine what that would be like. No sense of this condemnation hanging over you that will be revealed in the last day as everything is exposed and judged. You will never know real peace until you come to the Prince of Peace, the one who came. We celebrate that every Christmas, don't we, the Prince of Peace. The one who said, come to me, all of you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is the one that we come to.